Thank you, James. Uh, when I got here this morning, James, like he said earlier, was out for a surf session. And I came up on the beach right as James happened to be emerging from the waves like a sea god, like, you know, christening our time together. Uh, it was a good time. Uh, so uh, I'm excited. We're, we're in the series. We've been looking at Romans 6 through 8. It's this kind of pivotal point in the book of Romans, this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, a church that he was not yet familiar with personally. He had not met them, but he's writing from a distance, kind of pastorally to encourage them. And uh, this this point in Romans 6 through 8 is, is where he pivots from unpacking the beauty and majesty of everything that God has done for us in Jesus to now beginning to explore what it looks like to live differently as a result. In other words, what does it mean practically, functionally in our lives that we've been rescued by Jesus in his grace? And so that's what we're looking at, what it means to live a, a new life in Jesus because of what Jesus has already done for us. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 8, chapters 1 through 11. Uh, everything I'm going to talk about today, I could give like multiple sermons on. So I got too much to say and not enough time, not enough time to do it. So we're just going to hop right into it. But uh, Romans 8, 1 to 11, I'll read along here. You can uh, read along with me quietly to yourself. If you want to speak out loud, that's fine. Your neighbor will think you're a crazy person, but that's okay. We're accepting here. Uh, Romans 8, 1 to 11, I'll read, I'll pray. We'll dive right into it. So read along with me. This is the word uh, of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and now from God to us, starting in verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, and he's already said that if you are in Jesus, he is, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you in you. That's God's word for us this morning, written by the Apostle Paul in his own language and style and context, but inspired by God. And every time we open up God's word, he has something to say to us. So let's pray right now and ask that he would speak before we dive on in. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we love you. And we come before you this morning remembering that you loved us first. And so it's not so much that we say we love you so much as we say we love you too. And uh, we pray that you'd speak. I thank you that your word is living and active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And you have something to say to us. So Spirit, we ask that you would say, would you open up our, our hearts to you, God? As we open up your word, would you open up our hearts? I pray that every single person here, regardless of where we're coming from, our background, what we're bringing into this morning, would every single person get a fresh word from you? God, I thank you that each of us matter to you. You love us, you know us inside and out. 
and you invite us to bring our full selves to you, knowing that it's safe to do so because of your grace. There's literally nothing any one of us could do to separate us from your love. There's nothing any one of us could do to make you love us less because we're covered completely in Jesus. So I pray, God, that you would uh, help us to come before you honestly. Would you speak to us? Would you give us not just information in our heads, but transformation in our hearts? And we pray that you would do all this by your spirit. We pray, come Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, how can you and I live free from shame? How can we live free from the power of shame? Here's what I mean. Shame isn't the feeling, uncomfortable feeling that we get after we know we've done something wrong, when we feel uncomfortable because we know we've done something wrong. That in its place, actually rightly understood in context uh, from the place of a secure identity, can actually be helpful. No, shame doesn't say I've done something bad. Shame says I am bad. And how can we live free from the power of shame? I probably don't need to convince you uh, that shame can be destructive. But in case I do, uh, shame isn't just painful, and it is painful, and it's debilitating, and it can hold us back from bringing our true selves uh, to community, uh, and into what God has called us to do, into God himself. But it's not only painful, it's not only debilitating, it's actually associated with all kinds of more destructive behavior. Brene Brown is a, uh, a, a professor at the University of Houston. She, she specializes in research as shame in particular. She's kind of wrote the book, kind of literally, on shame. And uh, she says this, shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders, etc., etc., etc. In other words, shame does not motivate us towards healthier behavior. Shame actually causes us to double down into less healthy behavior. It causes, it undergirds us going further in to destructive behavior. Shame is destructive. And there are many indications that even though in kind of our cultural moment in LA generally, South Bay in particular, a place like this, even though we've uh, in many ways as, a, as kind of a, a culture, a collective, uh, moved away from some kind of old, uh, old kind of standards of morality that we often associate with producing shame. Even though that's been the case, there's actually a ton of indication that shame is actually increasing, not de decreasing. Uh, this is largely due in many ways to the pressures that are created from uh, social media and our 24-hour digital connection where we're constantly exposed to the highlight reels of other people's lives, create this impression that everyone is living a life that I don't have. Uh, we're exposed on a daily basis to something between 4,000 and 10,000 advertising messages on every single day. This creates this, uh, this perception that there's something missing in my life, this kind of just ambient feeling that there's more that I should be doing, more that I should have. But even those causes, digital connection, social media, kind of the rise of uh, onslaught of 24-7 exposure to advertising messages, all of those are just fuel to the fire to the actual root cause of shame. They're not the thing that actually causes it. And though w wisdom might say to limit our social media intake and be wise about the way we use technology and to navigate our cultural moment well, even that would just be toning down the flame a little bit. It wouldn't actually address the source at its root. See, shame is an identity issue. 
And we come to Romans chapter 8, and we see this beautiful declaration. It's the declaration that James ended his message on last week. It's what we come to to begin our message this week and the beginning of Romans chapter 8. This beautiful declaration that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the question that we have to ask as we unpack what this means, as, as we think about the implications of this beautiful truth, as we see that something here is offered that's an antidote to the power of shame, that's an antidote to the state of condemnation that we internalize and feel subjectively as shame. And the question we have to ask is this. How can we actually experience that truth? Like functionally, not just theoretically what we would check on a theology quiz box, but functionally in our lived experience, how can we actually live free from the power of shame? And the answer of our text in Romans chapter 8, the answer of our text as Paul now pivots to this uh, new line of thinking that he goes into in Romans 8, is that the difference between shame and freedom from shame is a matter of identity. The difference between shame and freedom from shame is a matter of identity. In Romans chapter 7, which we did kind of like a, a double dip uh, look uh, the, over the last couple weeks, James last week, uh, Todd the week before, we saw how Paul shows us that the life that we're invited to in Jesus is not one of just trying to keep the religious rules on our own effort. And Paul goes into to explain that the religious rules, what he calls the law, uh, what God's people historically to this point would call in Hebrew the Torah, the instruction, which is not just a list of rules, it's also a formative story. But this idea of Try of living to God's rules. It's not the life that we're invited to in Jesus, though God's rules, as Paul explains, have a, a really key place in bringing us into relationship with God. Because what God's rules expose is that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot earn our way to God. In fact, the problem of sin, this problem of our indwelt tendency towards trying to make God's work on our life work on God's terms and not, uh, I'm sorry, try to make life work on our terms and not God's terms to orient our lives around something that God made and not God himself. This indwelling problem of sin gets exposed by our attempts to keep the rules. Because when we try to keep the rules, what we find is we can't, not perfectly. And if we're honest with ourselves, that is the human experience. And so that draws us now to our need for God's grace. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul now begins to unpack this new life that we're invited to in Jesus. In Romans 8.2, he talks about how we're set free from condemnation uh, by the spirit, the law of the spirit. This, and now he's using law in a different sense. It's kind of confusing, but he uses law in two senses. James is chuckling because he had to navigate through that in all of Romans 7 last week. But he uses, uh, he uses law in one sense in, the, in God's good commands. And now in this sense in Roman, uh, Romans 8, chapter, uh, verse 2, now is the law of the Spirit, which is now kind of like the principle of the Spirit, the way of the Spirit. The way of the Spirit set us free from the way of sin and death. And so what we see here is that we're invited into this whole new mode of being. And the first thing that Paul shows us about this new way of the spirit is that it's a new identity, a new way of relating to God, a new way to relate to ourselves, and a new way to relate to our place in the world. And in Jesus, we're not just invited into something to believe intellectually, but a whole new identity that actually shapes and changes the way we experience life now and for eternity. It actually frees us from the power of shame. And so as we unpack Romans, uh, Romans 8, 
1 to 11 here, here's what we're going to see about this new identity, this new way of the Spirit that is, at, at first, there's many things we're going to learn in Romans 8 about the way of the Spirit, but the first thing that Paul shows us about it is that it's a new identity, and this new identity we're going to see, we're going to see a few things. First, we're going to see that we're invited into an identity based on grace, not based on performance. We're going to see that we're invited into an identity that is eternal, not circumstantial, and we're going to see that we're invited into an identity that is internalized relationally, not theoretically. So we, we're invited into identity that is based on grace, not performance, that is eternal, not circumstantial, and that is internalized. We internalize it relationally, not theoretically. So let's dive right in, because like I said, each one of those things I could preach like five sermons on, but we're only going to do one, and it's all going to be condensed now into the next 25 minutes. But here we go. All right. It's an identity based on grace, not performance. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 8.3. So here's his line of thinking. You've been set free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation that we exist under because of our, our, the indwelt power of sin that we're under by nature and choice, this broken tendency in us to try and make our life work on our terms, not God's terms, to orient our life around anything other than God, rather than God himself, and that gets exposed and highlighted by trying to keep God's rules in our own effort. We are set free from that condemnation. We're set free from it because the spirit, the, uh, the spirit, the way of the spirit sets us free from the way of sin and death. And then here's how he says that works. He says in, in, in Romans 8.3, for that all works, you're set free from condemnation for God has done what the law, our attempts to keep the rules in our own efforts, weakened by the flesh, weakened by our indwelling sin that makes us impossible for us to keep God's laws, could not do. God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So here in verse 3, Paul's using the law, the religious rules, and showing us how an attempt to keep the religious rules, a way of relating to God, ourselves, and our place in the world based on our performance, in other words, can't make us whole. It can't make us right with God. It can't free us from shame because the power of sin, he said, is weakened by the flesh. It makes a performance-based identity essentially non-functional in order to break the power of shame, in order to make us whole. Because shame is rooted in a performance-based identity. A way of thinking of myself, a way of relating to God, a way of relating to myself, a way of relating to my place in the world that is based on my performance. Because shame takes a failure, real or perceived, Maybe we actually did something we ought not to have done, or maybe we just think we have because of expectations put on us that, that we didn't really do anything wrong from the eyes of God, but we've broken some norm that we've internalized. Shame takes a real or perceived failure and interprets it as a blow to our very personhood. It doesn't just say, oh man, I really shouldn't have done that. I lied, I really shouldn't have lied. It says, I'm a liar, I'm a terrible person, I'm not worthy of love or acceptance. It's a blow to our very sense of personhood, our sense of validation, our sense of acceptance. And that can only happen if my sense of self is based on whether or not I've lived up to the standard. That can only happen if my identity is rooted in my performance. And here's what happens. Uh, this I know from personal experience. A performance-based identity puts us on a pendulum swing between 
ugly self-righteous pride when we have kept the rules, quote unquote, or we think we convince ourselves kind of as a defense mechanism that we have kept the rules. Or then on the other end, crippling shame. And we swing back and forth depending on whether or not we're, we're living up to the standard. And both, by the way, are two sides of the same coin. Self-righteous pride is essentially the, it's the same operating principle of shame just in reverse. So it's, the, it's still the shame, it's still the power of shame even if we've convinced ourselves that we're not, that we're keeping the rules. It puts us on this pendulum swing between ugly pride and crippling shame and neither is any place to live. Both of which fall short of the life that we're invited to in Jesus and practically speaking, neither are functional. And there are innumerable ways of creating a performance-based identity. The Apostle Paul digs in Romans 7 into his own unique brand of performance-based identity in his own flesh, which is this attempt to keep the religious rules in his own power and strength. But there are innumerable ways we might create performance-based identity, some that have to do with the religious rules, some that have nothing to do with the religious rules. If you spend any time on a mommy blogger's Instagram feed and you will see a list of rules that probably have nothing to do with God's laws and yet are a law that creates shame upon shame upon shame. So we could think of so many ways that we create performance-based identities. Maybe our performance-based uh, uh, performance identity is church activity or religious goodness. And if we base our identity on that, we will swing back and forth between pride and shame based on our obedience, or more likely, the appearance of obedience. It creates hiding, it creates a mask, and it's a pendulum swing back and forth between pride and shame based on our performance, or at least our ability to make it look like we're performing. If we base it on success, how we're doing in life, our career, the lifestyle we are attaining to, we're gonna swing back and forth between pride and shame based on my career trajectory, and I will be prone to overwork and sacrifice other priorities on the altar of my success. That's no way to live. If we base it on our, our appearance or our, our, kind of our sense of health, we'll swing back and forth between pride and shame based on our health and appearance, and we'll always live in fear that we can never escape Father Time and that there will always be someone healthier, always be someone more fit, always be someone that can run the mile faster than we can, always be someone who looks better than we do. If we're basing our identity on being a good parent, or being a good spouse. We'll swing back and forth between pride and shame based on our kids' performance or based on how our, what our spouse thinks of us and our kids or our spouse will be filled with anxiety or resentment because they will n they're never meant to carry the burden of our souls. The point I'm trying to show here is that building a performance-based identity leads to shame because shame can only thrive when our very personhood is wrapped up in our ability to keep whatever rule we've created for ourselves, or even any good rule that God might give us. Any identity where my deepest sense of value or acceptance is about me, or my ability to meet a standard, or please a community, or please a God, or please myself, will always be performance-driven. And so ironically, 
even turning to ourselves for our deepest sense of acceptance and validation as the first step in identity, as the highest priority of identity. Self-acceptance, self and forgiveness are a beautiful thing in the hands of God. But turning to ourselves for our deepest sense of acceptance and validation actually turns in just, just into another kind of performance-based identity. Because this is often thought of the way out, right? The way out of shame is to turn to yourself for self-acceptance as the first step, right? So it's like, I feel shame because there's a standard and I can't meet up this standard. So what I have to do is I just have to accept myself. And we do need to accept ourselves. We're invited to accept ourselves in Jesus, but not as the first order of acceptance that we receive, not as the first love that we receive. And when we treat it as the first love we need to receive, ironically, it actually just becomes another standard that we have to live up to. Because when we think about accepting ourselves as the first thing that we do, what we end up frequently doing is trying to think about those things that make us unique as opposed to others. Those things that distinguish ourselves as opposed to others, and then we accept that about ourselves. And if we're trying to distinguish ourselves from other people, that just means outperforming them in some way. Even if it's not like performance, strictly speaking, it's some way of being that is more of being than someone else. Something that is different than other people or better than other people in some way. And so we're distinguishing ourselves from other people by being better or being more unique or being more authentic or being something more than other people might be or something more unique or more uniquely us than other people might be. And then that becomes a standard that we have to leave up to. As soon as I accept myself because of this thing that I perceive about myself, now I have to live up to that thing about myself. And now I have to live up to that thing as opposed to other people. And so one of the clearest ways that this doesn't work is when we think about something that we find pride in ourselves in, and then what happens when someone shows up in our network, our community, who is more of that thing? I remember being in, uh, being in a, a circle of friends uh, years back, and uh, there are several things that, in my own flesh, I tend to base my identity on, on performance. And I remember a friend that kind of started hanging out with us, and he was more of several of those things than I am. He was better. And it was like, it, it, it threatened me, right? Because I'm basing my sense of self-acceptance on something about me. It becomes a law even when it looks like it's self-acceptance. And so someone here might be saying, all right, look, I, I get how not basing your identity on your performance, uh, I, I get how that's important for someone who's really struggling. Right? I get if you're at rock bottom or if you're just kind of caught up in failure, like, of course that's going to lead to shame all the time. But honestly, that's not really a problem for me. Like, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, oh, yes, obviously I do things I shouldn't do. Obviously, like, I haven't, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. And so, on it, like, I just, this doesn't, I'm fine, you know? This isn't really a problem for me. And that may be what you're experiencing now. Maybe, maybe shame is not something you struggle with. But what I would suggest is give it time. Because it's not an accident that there are so many high-performing people in the South Bay, so many successful people in the South Bay, so many people that have made it in the South Bay, and yet who still struggle with shame. And their performance has not tuned down the power of shame in their life. You remember the, um, the book? I never read the book, but the movie The Help. I don't know how long it came out. Ten, ten years ago, whatever. There's a scene in The Help. It's about um, 
It's about housekeepers in, this, in Jim Crow South who are kind of navigating the realities of racism. And, uh, and there's one point where one of these housekeepers has a abusive racist employer and she's fed up with it and she finally decides to kind of get back at her and do something about it. And so she bakes her a pie. And in the pie, she puts a little bit of her duty, okay? So uh, she bakes the pie, there's a little bit of duty in it. She gives her the pie and there's this big dramatic scene and it plays for a laugh where the racist employer eats the pie and then the housekeeper who we're rooting for says dramatically to her, eat my, and then she says a word that starts with SH and rhymes with spit. And I won't say it here because this is being recorded. And there are children present, but if you don't know what I'm talking about, God bless you, you sweet, innocent dove. She, she says, eat my, you know what she says, right? And it plays for a laugh, and it's hilarious. And the reason it's funny is because we all know that even if we were given a pie, say it's an apple pie, and say I gave you a pie. I wouldn't, but let's just say I gave you a pie. And uh, you're eating a pie and it's apples, and you're like, oh, this is pretty good. And I'm like, it's, it's an apple pie. There's a little bit of my duty in it. You would spit it out immediately, and unless you're Johnny Knoxville, you would have no interest in eating this pie, uh, because we know it doesn't matter what the apple-to-duty ratio is. The apple-to-duty ratio could be 100 to 1, but a little bit of duty ruins the whole pie, right? A little bit of duty makes the whole thing completely non-functional. We want no part of it. In the same way, a little bit of our sin, a little bit of our broken tendency to try to make life work on our terms, not God's terms, and to try to live differently than the life that God invites us to live, ruins the whole thing if we're basing it on our performance. It's why God takes sin so seriously. It's why performance-based identities don't work, not over the long haul. Eventually, it will catch up to us. And so I've taken a very long time to make a very simple point that performance-based identities do not work. They produce shame in our lives. But look at the identity that we're invited to in Jesus. Key phrase in Romans 8, chapter 3, where we're set free from the power of condemnation. We're set free from condemnation that we experience as shame. Why? Because God has done God has done, not because you have done. You're not free from condemnation because you have done. You've been authentic enough. You've had enough faith. You've kept the rules. You've been your true self. No, we are free from condemnation that we experience shame. We're free from the power of condemnation because we're invited into a whole new identity based on what God has done. Because here's what God has done, the Apostle Paul says. God has done what our performance-based identities couldn't do because of the power of our sin. Because he came, God sent the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe, entered into humanity, entered into his creation, came as one of us. The language the Apostle Paul uses here is in the likeness of sinful flesh. Though God, though Jesus never sinned, he came as one of us, experiencing temptation, experiencing the full range of our humanity, our human experience living as one of us and as our representative because he came for sin, the Apostle Paul said. And in Jesus, when Jesus went to the cross, when Jesus died in our place, God condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, all my failure, all your failure, if we're in Jesus, all of it is dealt with in full on the cross of Jesus. Every sin, past, present, and future, is paid in full in Jesus' life. And so we see that God is just. God always deals justly with sin. But because he deals justly with sin in Jesus on our behalf, he gladly, he gladly, he delights to forgive sinners like you and me. 
What we see in Jesus is a whole new identity that's not based on our performance. It's based on what God has done for us. In other words, it's based on grace. The Apostle Paul never uses that word, but the grace, this idea of an unearned gift, this basis for which we relate to God and now relate to ourselves and our place in the world, it's not based on what we've done. It's not based on how much of ourselves we can be. It's based on what God has done for us. It's based on his unconditional love and acceptance for us in Jesus. The truest thing about you if you are in Jesus, the most important thing about you if you are in Jesus is that you are loved by the God of the universe. And because you are loved by the God of the universe, that God has done for you what you couldn't have done for yourself, what I couldn't have done for myself, he paid our debt in full on the cross of Jesus. Think of it like this. We could, we could image it like this. Say in this hand, which I can't lift because I'm holding a microphone, but say uh, this hand, which let's imagine I'm not holding my microphone, it's just empty. In this hand, my left hand, that I'm wiggling my fingers right now, that's the record of Jesus. And in, and in this kind of way of thinking, if you're imagining I'm not holding the microphone, there's no condemnation on Jesus. It's empty, it's free. This hand, where I'm holding my Bible, it's a bad image to use the Bible as the weight of sin, but there we go. I guess it's the law of God that exposes, <laughs> exposes our sin. So the analogy works, based on Romans 7. Go, go listen to James and Todd's message from the last two weeks. Um, I have condemnation on me in and of myself, left to my own devices. But what God did in Jesus is he sent the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin and condemned sin in the flesh, to use the language of Romans chapter 8. And so God placed my record of debt onto Jesus. And so now me over here, what's now on top of me because my debt's on Jesus? Nothing. We're free from condemnation. We're free from the power of shame. The truest thing about us is free from shame like the church father Athanasius said thousands of years ago, that he became, Jesus became what we are, that we might become what he is. That we're given a new identity that's not based on our performance, but based on grace. And do you see how that frees us from the power of shame? When the truest thing about me has nothing to do with my performance, when the truest thing about me has nothing to do with me being able to keep the standard or be myself enough, it's just about God loves me. And he did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He paid the debt of my sin in full. There's no basis for shame to begin with. It undoes the power of shame at its source. And so now I've got a very short time to say everything else that I needed to say. <laughs> I do this, if you guys don't know this about me. I spend way too much time on my first point. And then I'm like, ah, okay, here we go. We have an identity that's not based on our performances, based on grace. So we are invited to this identity that's based on, perform, or on grace, not performance. And now we see that we're invited into an identity that is eternal, not circumstantial. Because we see this trajectory of this passage, this line of thinking, where Paul uh, takes it to the end. And in, in verse 10 and 11, he says this, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, our bodies are dying. We live in a broken world, corrupted by the power of sin, 
The world is not what it was meant to be. Death is a reality of this world. And so that's our physical reality for now. But the spirit is life in us. And then he goes on to say, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, not just your spirit, not just not just enliven your spirit now. Now he's talking about something else. He'll give life to your bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He's talking about this eternal trajectory of our identity in Jesus, which I'll unpack in a second. But first, we just got to see that the shame-based shoulds of performance-based identities get turned up to 11 when we acknowledge the reality that the clock is ticking when we acknowledge the reality that life is short, and if everything is about what I accomplish or what I can be or what I can do in this life in some way, even if we would never phrase it like that, but if that's our mode of living in the world, all of that gets turned up to 11 when all I have is this life. Leo Tolstoy uh, wrote Anna Karenina, War and Peace, a bunch of other books you probably maybe at one point had to read for an English class, but didn't. he wrote a memoir called Confessions in which he's navigating this reality where he was, had this performance-based identity of being brilliant, being a brilliant writer. And he's uh, encountering all the ways that that, uh, that left him short, that, that didn't work in his life, that, that created questions that his soul couldn't handle. And here's what he says. He says, my question That which at the age of 50 brought me on the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live as I have found by experience. The question is this, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? See, what Tolstoy found is that this performance-based identity working, himself, working itself out in him was falling short, and all that was turned up to 11 by the, by the fact that the time was ticking, by the fact that he believed at that point in his life that, that this was all there is. All I've got is this, and it's going to fade away, and it's all going to mean nothing in the end. The sun's going to expand. We're all going to be burned up. No one's going to remember anything I ever did, and that's it. And that creates this anxiety and shame because it turns the shoulds of a performance-based identity up to 11. But that is not the reality that we're invited to in Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, because the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, and that same Spirit is in you, that Spirit is going to raise you from the dead at the end of all things, at the culmination of history. The hope of life with Jesus is that you are going to be resurrected to eternal life that you're going to be with Jesus. You're going to have this identity of unconditional love and acceptance in God because of the work of Jesus on your behalf. That is going to exist for eternity. And it's not just going to exist for eternity in some kind of like spiritual, mystical clouds in the sky, playing a harp, wearing a white robe. You're going to be resurrected into new life in a renewed creation that this new reality of the spirit is going to last for forever, which means there is no ticking clock. The pressure is off. Yes, our actions matter. Yes, what we do in this life matters. In fact, because it's resurrection and not getting zapped up into heaven, our eternal hope is in what's going to happen in this this creation, a renewed version of creation. And so how we live in this creation matters. It's a reflection of what we will do in new creation in eternity. And so it's not to say that 
you know, ah, just go to eternity. Nothing really, we're going to get zapped up into heaven, so nothing really that we do really matters. No, what we do here matters because it's resurrection, not the holy heaven zap. But even though what we do matters, the pressure is off. We have for literal forever to enjoy the love of God. We have for, for literal forever to live in his ways. We have for literal forever to live in calling in our lives. It matters that our hope, our identity, is not circumstantial based on how things in this life are going and how much time we have left, but they're eternal. This is the identity that we have in Jesus. As James said last week, as he reminds himself before he goes out for a surf every morning, he's an eternal being. We are eternal beings. That's not how it ends. We'll close with this. We're invited into an identity that is internalized relationally, not theoretically. Because here's the thing. Maybe you're thinking, all right, well, if this new identity that we have in Jesus is so awesome and breaks the power of shame, then why do so many Christians still live filled with shame? Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I believe everything you just said. Everything you just said, that's not news to me. But I still feel, feel, I still feel filled with shame. Why is shame still a reality if our new identity in Christ is so great? if our new identity in Christ actually does break the power of shame. Well, let's look at the middle of this passage where the Apostle Paul talks about how it gets worked out in us, starting in verse 4. He says in, that God did for us in Jesus what we couldn't do for ourselves. He paid the debt of our sin. And then in verse 4, here's what he says. He did all that in order that, pay attention whenever you see something like that, it's like, okay, this is the purpose. This is what God's doing in us. In order that, the righteous requirement, singular, of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the, on the, of the flesh, and those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's laws. Indeed, it can't. And those who are in the flesh can't please God. But you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Look at the language of that text. Look at the language of what we just read. Look at the language of what he's talking about in terms of how this identity is expressed and internalized in us. He says we walk according to the spirit. We have our minds set on the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in you, he says, follower of Jesus. So what is the nature of this new identity practically lived out now? It's an identity that is worked out in relationship to the Spirit. Now, many of us, when we read about the spirit, and we're reading about mindset on the spirit, we walk according to the spirit, the spirit dwells in us. We think of this like mystical, impersonal force, right? We think of, we think of it like, it's like the force in Star Wars, right? It's like this thing that's in us, and it's like you can feel it, kind of, sort of, especially if you sing like a really banger worship song or something like that, like, and it's like, it's there, and then like, I don't know, it's not, I'm not like a Christian, not like Obi-Wan Kenobi, like I can't like do things with it, but I feel it, I know it's there, right? We think of it as an it, 
Now, there are a few times in Scripture where the Spirit is referred to as an it, but predominantly, the Scriptures refer to the Spirit as a he. That what the Scriptures show us about the Spirit of God is the Spirit of God is God himself. He's the third person of the Trinity. In other words, it would be more fitting to call the Spirit a he. It's more fitting to think of the Spirit as a person, a personal being, than it is to think of the Spirit as a mystical force. What we're seeing played out here is not a force that empowers us. We're seeing a relationship that we're living in that transforms us. The nature of our new identity in Christ, the nature of this law, this principle, this way of the Spirit is relational, not theoretical. It gets formed in us. We internalize who we really are in Jesus. We internalize that we really are unconditionally loved by God, fully accepted because all our sin, past, present, and future is paid in full. That our identity now is eternal, not circumstantial. We experience all of that. It's formed in us. It's internalized in us relationally as we connect with the Spirit of God in relationship. And this is fitting because everything we know about identity is that identity is a social project. It is relational. Uh, one journalist, uh, a guy named William Park, he's summing up identity, our social science of identity in, uh, in an article for the BBC and he put it really simply like this. He said, it is now well accepted that our personal sense of self is derived from other people. In other words, identities at their core are always relational. We learn who we are from the community around us. That's the nature of being a human. We are irreducibly relational. And if human relationships are formative in our life, if human relationships teach us who we are, how much more a true, vital, intimate relationship with the God of the universe. How much more formative is being known and loved and knowing and loving the God of the universe? We're formed by relationship with God, by the Spirit. And so this identity that we've been given in Jesus, that we're accepted, that we're loved, that all of our sin, past, present, and future is paid for on Jesus's cross, and all that is eternal. It's something that gets formed in us over a lifetime as we do relationship with God by the Spirit, as we connect with the Spirit of God. And we're going to learn what that looks like over the next few weeks, so <laughs> teaser, uh, as we continue on into Romans 8. But for now, let's just see that what we're invited into is to connect with God by the Spirit. We're invited to live life with him. And as we live life with him, as we live mindful of his presence, as we have ways of doing life where we connect ourselves to God, we remind ourselves that the spirit dwells in us as we learn from God and learn who he really is in the scriptures. Oh my gosh, what a beautiful illustration of why it's so important to let God define for himself who he is because he's the one who shows us who we really are. He's the one who forms our new identity. And so if we're letting our, our pre-existing assumptions or our preferences about God define who he is, we're going to form an identity in our own image rather than letting the image of God form up, be formed in us by experiencing God. And so we connect with God personally. And that's what forms us. That's what internalizes in us the new identity that we have in Jesus. I love the way that the, the counselors, uh, Richard Plass and James Colfield put it. They put it like this. They say, is not this the invitation of the gospel? We can own up to who we really are in the presence of God, who loves us beyond all measure. 
we can repent and surrender of our false self strategies to the one who lived, died, and was raised and ascended to heaven. And as we do, both initially and daily, the interpretation of our story changes. And when our interpretation changes, so does our identity. And what we might add to that from Romans 8, 1 to 11 is when our identity changes from being based on performance to being based on the love and unconditional acceptance of God shown in the work of Jesus. When our identity changes from circumstantial to eternal, when our identity is internalized relationally over time, not theoretically, that identity undoes the power of shame in our lives. It undoes the power that says, not good enough, broken. It gives a whole new identity. And because that identity is formed relationally in us, the way we respond now as we close is to have some time to be with the Father, by the Spirit, to come before God and to see what the Father would show us. And what the Father would show us is the work of Jesus. The finished work of Jesus where every sin, past, present, and future is paid for in full, where we see the full love of God poured out for you, where you see who you really are are loved by God, accepted, every shortcoming paid in full. And so right now as we close, I'm going to lead us in some prayer. And we're going to come before this God who loves us like that. We're going to come before this God who shows us how he loves us on the cross of Jesus. So right now I'm going to pray. And I'm going to invite you guys to pray with me. And we're going to create some space to just be with God. To recenter our hearts on the heart of God by the Spirit to name anything that's holding us back from intimacy with God, any, any sin in recent memory that you've not done business with God, and if not because, it's, not because from God's perspective, you've you got to settle it with him or he's going to get you, but because we're invited to see that thing as paid for, as forgiven, and to release it to God in repentance. And so now we're going to pray. And all the while, we're going to do so with our eyes focused on who God is for us in Jesus. Would you guys pray with me? God, we love you. And uh, we're so grateful for your grace. We're grateful for this new identity that you give us in Jesus, this new self, this new way, this new law of the spirit that sets us free from the law of sin and death. We praise you, Jesus, for who you are for us, what you've done for us. God, you are incredible that you love us the way that you do. And in Jesus, the truest thing about us is what you say is true and what you say is forgiven, accepted, loved, every failure, past, present, and future paid in full. And it's an identity that's eternal. And so we come before you, God, right now, wanting to connect with you, wanting to hear from you. We've just heard from you in your word, but would you personalize it to us right now? We pray for the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the proclamation that Jesus is king and victorious over sin and death and the powers of darkness because he's done for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. We come before you in response to that. So right now, um, if there's anything that you just need to name before God, thought, an action, something you said that you know um, was not the life that God has intended for you, large or small. Let's take some time to name it before God, knowing that his grace covers us, 
that we're naming it before him, not trying to make up for something because there's nothing left to make up. There's nothing left to pay. It's paid for in Jesus. What we're doing is we are releasing it into the hands of God. We're remembering who we really are. We're forgiven and accepted. And now because of that, we can repent and release it to God. And so right now, let's just take some time. If there's anything that you need to just say before God right now, anything that you need to confess before God, we'll have a moment just of quiet, some waves, some kind of music playing in the background, just to breathe to confess. anything that you needed to say before God, or if you're just coming and reflecting and reminding yourself of God's love for you in Jesus, especially if there's anything specific that you needed to name before God, hear the word of God spoken over you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done for you what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement in the law might be fulfilled in you who walk not according to the spirit, according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If you're here and... Um, You've, you're just checking this Jesus stuff out. You've never, you're not even sure if you believe in any of it, and you're just kind of checking it out, exploring, and you feel like, man, I want that. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to walk you through that process. Please grab James, not physically, metaphorically. Me, Bill. Bill, can you raise your hand right here? We'd love to walk you through what it looks like to enter into a relationship with God. We'd love to help you in that journey to come before God, embracing the identity given to us in Jesus, not the identity that's based on our performance. I'm gonna pray one more time. And uh, then I'm gonna invite us to take communion as a, a physical representation, this tangible reminder and picture of the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, that his body was broken, his blood was shed, that every sin, past, present, and future is paid in full. Let's pray one more time. God, we love you. So grateful for your grace. You've done for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves, and you love us. You love us. That's the truest thing about us, is that we're loved by God, we're forgiven of all of our shortcomings. We have a self that's not based on our performance, but based on your grace, and it's an eternal identity that will last forever, the clock's not ticking. And now we live in relationship with you, and you show us who we really are praise you for it. 
Help us to, help us to live life with you that it would be formed in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Feel free to take communion at your own time. And that's all we got.